Each child is a gift from God, an embodied soul. How do I develop a lesson so that it meets their needs? We want to learn things for the love of learning and for the sake of learning and because it's beautiful, not because we can be on show. If you're gonna treat a child as a person, efficiency really has to drop low on your list of values because they're not wired to be efficient. Her starting point was always theological. In God's word, what does it say about children teaching and learning? And I'll say, those are the first grade stairs. We're walking up the first grade stairs. And every step is so important. Today you're on the first step. So everything will be new. But tomorrow, you'll be on the second step. And there will be some things that we've done today that we'll be doing tomorrow. And so you'll remember those things. Trinity School has a long-standing tradition of reading and growing together as a community. Over the past two decades, we've explored a range of works in our Trinity Reads program from the Bible to Tolstoy to Hans Christian Andersen and Andy Crouch. Join us this summer as we take a deeper dive into the rich and unhurried mission of Trinity School. Well, my name's Chip Denton, and I'm here today with Emily Merriweather and Meg Lybrand for the third uh, episode of our podcast for Trinity Reads. This summer, Trinity School of Durham and Chapel Hill is reading Susan Schaefer Macaulay's For the Children's Sake. It was a book that was influential for the founders of Trinity, a uh, way of introducing some of us to Charlotte Mason and her educational philosophy. And so I'm really excited to be talking to a number of different folks over the summer. And I'm especially excited this morning, Emily and Meg, to talk to you as parents. Uh, we wanna make these conversations as practical as possible in the intersection of home and school. And I just think that you all have a lot to uh, offer us. Meg and Emily are also the TPO leaders. Meg is the president of the Trinity Parent Organization this uh, coming year, and Emily is the vice president. So thank you all for serving. We really appreciate that. Absolutely. Could you all introduce yourselves? Meg, could you go first? And sure. yeah, thanks yeah. for joining us today. Thank you. Um, I'm super honored to get to do this. So thanks for having us. I am Meg Labrand. Uh, my husband is Brett, and we have four kids. Karis is going into the fifth grade, which makes me, I can't even believe this is about to happen. <laughs> yeah. um, Hattie is going into the third grade. Della will be in kindergarten, which it's like she's getting to go to Disney World next year. Mm -hmm. um, we're really excited about that. And then Jed is going to be at home destroying things as our two-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah. Yeah, that's great. And, uh You've got a, a passel of them. That's great. I'd, I'd have three here at Trinity. It would be exciting. And Emily, how about yourself? Yeah, so I have three children, and um, my oldest, Peter, is going to be in fourth grade. Teddy's going to be in second, and then our little girl, Mabel Dove, is going to be in kindergarten, hopefully, with Dad. With Dad, yes. Um, so, yeah, it'll be my first first year without anybody at home, so that will be new and interesting and yeah. maybe less destructive, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> than at Meg's house. But I'm excited. I'm really um, excited to have all three bunnies in the burrow of Trinity School. So <laughs> Bunnies in the burrow. That's good. Yeah. Uh, what 
first drew you to Trinity School? Meg, what, your family, what yeah. was the draw here? Well, I mean, you need a whole podcast for that, really. <laughs> um, our church got to gets to meet here. And so mm-hmm. we got to meet several people who were on staff and not people who work directly with kids, people who are mostly behind the scenes. Um, and I was really amazed at how deeply they loved kids, mm-hmm. um, even though they didn't have uh, positions that were working directly with them. Um, they were really bought into the mission and love kids. And I thought, man, if the people behind the scenes feel that way, I can't imagine what it's like in the classroom. And it is certainly not disappointed. Oh, that's really encouraging to hear. I'm expecting that one of those people was our, uh, our dear, uh, Brent Brent Clark. Clark. Yeah. Who died a few weeks ago. And yeah, yeah, that is, uh, still sad for us to think about, but, um, I'm so encouraged to hear that. Yeah. Uh, you know, that all, all, everyone who works here at Trinity is delivering the mission. That's exactly. what we're going for. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Emily, how about you and your family? Yeah, so there were two um, kind of main things that I feel like uh, drew us to Trinity. And the first was when we were visiting the library. Um, I uh, was listening sort of to um, the lecture that was going on um about Trinity School, but I was glancing through the library and the books that were on display, and I was just floored by what was on display because it basically was my childhood library. Um, And these books are not ones that would be common now or kind of at the store at Barnes & Noble. And um, that basically sold me and my husband right away because I, I was like, I can't imagine the I, the notion that I would be able to send my children to a school that has my childhood library in it um, and everything that kind of curated my imagination um, I could give to them at school, not just at home. And that continuity was just um, really exciting for us. Um, and then also mm. the classicalness, actually. Um, I love the idea that... Um, my children could sort of befriend writers and artists and musicians from other times mm-hmm. and ages and hear from them in their own words, not filtered through um, our current age, yeah. and that that would be valuable and normal and every day that um, their life would kind of be infused by human wisdom over time. Yeah, um, which is what classicalness mm-hmm. gives. Yeah. So those those two things were the the main clinchers for us. You know, there's so much there, Emily, that uh, really touches to the heart of of Charlotte Mason's uh, educational philosophy, and and we're going to talk about some of that as we go through the chapter here today. Uh, we're in chapter two, but just think about uh, what she says about living books, mm-hmm. and also the importance of students coming directly in contact with ideas Mm -hmm. through books and things, authors um, worthy of their attention. So we're there. uh, So we're we're in chapter two this week. We're um, looking at especially at pages 26 to 41. And I just uh, wondered if there were something that resonated with each of you and particularly just grabbed you as you read this section. Yeah, Meg? Yeah. 
Um, well, so it, it felt like kind of an aside, but also deeply underlying all of the things in here. But on page 33, um, she said that Charlotte Mason thought that the Bible could directly and systematically in it itself educate the mind. Huh. Yeah. Um, and when I read that, first of all, I was challenged by it because I would say that I trust the sufficiency of scripture, but I've never thought about it. You know, could it really educate somebody? Um, and so I really thought about that a ton. I thought, you know, it's got great literature, like the Psalms mm-hmm. are rich, the Proverbs and the wisdom literature, the, the words in there are magnificent, as Charlotte Mason says, um, the historical, you know, accounts in the Old Testament, the personality of the Gospels, you know, so I was like, okay, this is good, but can it teach math? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and then the Lord hysterically reminded me that there's a book called Numbers, and I was like, maybe it could. Um, so anyway, that just really challenged me. But more than that, it made me realize how deep Charlotte Mason's faith was, that that really was what held together her whole philosophy of education. It wasn't just some idea that was thought up in a, you know, somewhere, uh, but it was deep in her heart and her yeah. convictions that, that Jesus was enough. Yeah. Yeah. There was a great respect for the Bible in, in Mason. It's really... and. You think about the people, people who have been educated primarily by reading the Bible yeah. over the centuries. I, I think about John Bunyan, who was really not a particularly educated man, but it, like read the Bible and deeply. <laughs> and Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, these are people who, you know, they they learned how to read and they learned how to think by reading the Bible. Yeah. And you think about the powerful ways that that Bible shaped them. And, right. of course, their education then goes on from there, lifelong education. But, yeah, that's mm-hmm. great. Yeah. Emily, how about cool. you? What what did you, what stood out for you? Yeah, um, so kind of at the very beginning of the chapter, I like this line. Um, he, as in the child, is a separate human being whose strength lies in who he is, not in who he will become. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that along with the idea of children being born as persons, um, it affects me and I think all of us in this age a lot because it demotes kind of efficiency and productivity as a measure of value. Um, And if you're going to treat a child as a person, efficiency really has to drop low on your list of values because children... um, they're not wired to be efficient. And really, efficiency isn't a moral good necessarily. Um, It isn't a moral absolute. I think it can be helpful and there are positive things about it. But I've even noticed in myself, um, when I'm making a decision, sometimes instead of saying, would this be the right thing for this child? I will kind of say, is this the most efficient thing for my day? Yeah. And um, to abandon that, or at least to demote it significantly, especially for young children, um, it just really has to be done um, yeah. in order to honor their personhood. And I think Mason fleshed that out in all of her methods, really. Um, she did not hold efficiency up high, if at all. Um, hmm. Yeah. So that that was one thing, um, really and good. and also one one more thing um, yeah. about um, looking like a good parent versus being a good parent. <laughs> I think um, 
yeah, when you let go of the efficiency piece, often you look really disorganized, you're late for everything, and you have to sort of explain yourself a lot because you're not running on the same paradigm as everyone else. And it really takes a shift in um, deciding that, you know what, this this other mother um, or this group of mothers next to me don't know the backstory that this particular child mm-hmm. needs me to not come down on them about something that we all feel like is disobedient or whatever. But you can always, you end up sometimes looking um, like less of a parent than you want to be perceived as. Um, but yeah. when you put the child first as a person, that, that sometimes happens and you have to be okay with that. Gosh, that's good. That is good. It makes me think of the uh, North Carolina state motto is esse quam wideri, to, to be rather than to seem, mm-hmm. uh, which is, is challenging sometimes. So it's challenging. like, yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, um, let's talk about reading aloud. Uh, Macaulay talks about that. Um, I know that at Trinity we value reading aloud, uh, especially for younger children, and I wonder... Um, why do you think this is important, and what what have has your experience been reading aloud with your own children? Um, Emily, you want to go first on this sure, one? Sure, sure. Um, so we love reading aloud, um, <clears throat> and just in our experience as a family, especially the the kind of longer, more of magical and imaginative books. Um, what ends up happening is it feels like you've visited places together and made memories in places together because you you have read aloud. So in the same moment, you are all going to La Florian. You are all going to Treasure Island. You are all meeting these people at the same time. And so I think if if one of your goals as a family is to kind of create this tight-knit culture and a culture that's unique to your family, one of the best ways to do that is to go to a ton of places together Mm -hmm. through books, um, which is why they can't be twaddle. I think because you won't read, like I won't read it. (laughs) If it's terrible, I can't get through it. And you just won't go to those places if they're not exciting and and mystical and other. no, that's great, that idea of a journey together. Yeah. Think of uh, Emily Dickinson's There, There Is No Frigate Like a Book to Take Us Lands Away. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's, that's really... And so you mentioned a couple of books, like mm-hmm. uh, so Lord of the Rings and Treasure Island. Yeah, let me no get my little list. It was but, hard to uh, pare it down. <laughs> yeah, just what are some of the books that you all have read? Together? Yeah, so all of Edith Nesbitt books, mm-hmm. Five Children in It, the Sammy Ad Trilogy, um, Swallows and Amazons by Arthur Ransom, and it's a whole trilogy. Most of these books are from like the late 1800s um, or the or the 1930s, actually. Um, George MacDonald is my absolute favorite. So what's a George okay. MacDonald that you would start with? Like, let's say you've got okay. kids that are like your age. Your okay, kids. The Princess and the Goblin. Yeah. I would start there. And then the Which second. Which was uh, one uh, one summer, that was our Trinity read. Oh, it was? Yeah, way back in the day, we did The Princess and the Goblin. Yeah, okay. the whole school together. Really? I, he's just amazing. Um, Actually, and as a parent, I, so I don't think my kids would be ready, but he also wrote a book called The Wise Woman, which was 
actually probably the most one of the most convicting books I've ever read. I think it's for children, but it was um, it was really powerful for me. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so and then the Edward Eager also writes a series mm-hmm. of books, Half Magic and Magic by the Lake. Um, yeah. And then a little more obscure one um, is called Lynette's and Valerians by Elizabeth Googe. She is yeah. as well known, but um, that's an all time favorite and. Yeah, we, we should figure out a way for parents to share with one another, yeah. you know, really valuable uh, reads. I don't know, Meg, yeah. if you have any uh, experiences of reading aloud you'd like to talk about. Yeah. Well, I just have to say, so, you know, we have a two-year-old and for fun, he likes to eat tubes of toothpaste and draw on the <laughs> wall. And so, and we've always had someone in that range, you know, and so reading out loud, I totally agree. And I said, I thought the same thing. It's like a shared experience, mm-hmm. you know, like you have memories of it. You talk about it, like you come back to it and you're like, oh, remember when that happened? Um, and so, but we've kind of had to fight for that in our family. Like it hasn't been like I, in and of myself, like I would literally sit around and snuggle on the sofa and read books all day long if I could with my kids. But, you know, it doesn't happen when Jed is playing in the toilet all of right. a sudden, you know? <laughs> um, and so... But I think it's worth fighting for, you know, Mm -hmm. and so I don't feel like we have done that the best. But one thing I was talking to Brett about this is so interesting is that when you open a book, even if it's like a board book, like Jed loves this book about excavators right now, um, or like a Dr. Seuss book or something like that, that, that feels really elementary. Like everyone seems to gravitate toward it, towards it. Um, and so there's a real power in words, um, and especially really well-written words. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, I, one of the thing, or I was the same thing. I was like, "You want to know some of my favorite books? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How long do you have? You know." Mm-hmm. Um, but it was amazing, and kind of like you were saying about coming to the Trinity Library and seeing your childhood books, like how strong, strong affection I have towards the books I read as a kid. Um, like where the wild things are. I thought about a lot of picture books. Um, I could recite the whole book for you, you know, Mm -hmm. and when he comes home at the end of his adventure and his supper is waiting for him and Mm -hmm. it was hot, you know, um, I love that. And then Miss Rumpheus is one of my very favorite books, the Lupin lady. Um, and it, it's, it was fun. You know, as a kid, I loved it. Probably I loved the um, pictures in it. And I loved the story and it took me on faraway adventures. Right. And then, but I loved at the end how she was old and she felt like she had nothing to give, but she took these flower seeds and spread them all over her town, you know, and it just challenged me in a lot of ways, um, in that way. But I love those. I also love, um, the little princess. Um, I just think the, the gospel is so in there, right. Mm -hmm. You know, that we are, we're a princess, um, but we're not treated as such. And we don't think of ourselves as such. And, um, but then to see the way that she did act like that, even though she wasn't treated that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last one that I was going to say is, um, Oh, the trumpet of the swan. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't read that as a kid and I, I didn't read it ever until COVID. Um, when we all started reading books with our kids as their teachers read them to them yeah. over, you know, YouTube channels or whatever. Um, and so um, the first grade was reading The Trumpet of the Swan. And I I actually was so excited every day. You know, what's yeah. going to happen to Lewis today? 
Um, and as a family, we really gathered around that. And I'll say at the end of the year, Betty Simpson gave all of the kids a copy of The Trumpet of the Swan. And when we got that, you mm. know, it was in a bag that we got handed and the drive through thing. And um, when, she, when Hattie pulled it out, I just started crying. I thought like that book will so much, it blessed us as a family in such a crazy time. Um, which then just goes to speak of the power of a well-written book, you know, yeah. that it had nothing to do with the pandemic or trying to educate your kids at home or all these right. practical things. Um, but that looking back, that book was such a enormous blessing to us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all these books that you all are mentioning are what Charlotte, Charlotte Mason called living books. Mm -hmm. And it's, Hard to know exactly what a living book is, and mm -hmm. sort of, but I do think there's, um, uh, they are books that have lived on in the collective experience of families like yours that have read them and found that they they have that effect mm -hmm. and they continue to do that. One of the things that we have talked about as a, particularly as a classical school is the value of reading old books, mm -hmm. and one of the values of reading old books that you talked about one Emily was that you go places that we couldn't go today, yeah. to old places, to, um, to perspectives that we might not have. And sometimes those are problematic in certain ways, but they are also challenging in ways that are in wonderful ways. But the other um, value of reading old books is that they're time-tested. Mm -hmm. we, we, generations of families have proven over and over that these are alive and right. they have these effects. So. Let's, uh, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about uh, narration, which is the other piece of this. So you think about students uh, or children listening to books read aloud. Uh, one of the things that Charlotte Mason uh, talked about also was the, the value of a child attending carefully to that reading and then telling back. So her word for that was narration, mm -hmm. um, what they heard. And uh, I wonder... Um, why do you think this kind of telling back is important uh, as a way of learning and demonstrating, not just demonstrating learning, but the actual learning itself? Mm -hmm. Want me to? Yeah, sure. That? Okay. Um, so I, I can't really speak necessarily to the developmental um, asset that narration is, even though I can imagine that it is a great one. Um, but as I thought about this as I was reading um, the book, it seems like we are always sort of retelling stories to ourselves just mm. in general, even mm. as grown-ups. And um, so the ability to read kind of a living or kind of a gospel-scented story and be able to accurately tell it back to yourself in quiet moments, in have your thought life be running on um, really good stories would be important for your soul, mm. I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so if a child can develop the, the ability to accurately retell a story to themselves mm. um, with truth, then um, I just think it, it washes them in... Um, in goodness mm -hmm. um, and because we're always thinking about something and yeah. um, so the more goodness truth and beauty they have that can be circulating in their minds um, it, I just feel like it'll expand their ability to 
um, understand the gospel, but also their ability to read the Bible because mm. the Bible is like the antithesis of twaddle. And so um, everything they read should be kind of enlarging their capacity to um, understand what they find there mm. um, and have what they find there go into their minds and be retold to themselves over and over again with accuracy and um, with real wisdom. Yeah, that's so good. There's a place in Mason somewhere where she talks about uh, the the outer and the inner courts of mm -hmm. our minds yeah. and that so much of what we hear goes into the outer courts. And of course, you know, modern neuroscience could speak about this even more precisely, but I think it's true. But there is an inner court of knowledge and learning, and that's where we want this stuff, especially the really good stuff, to go. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that process of developing a habit of listening mm -hmm. and then the, the knowing that you're going to be asked to tell something back, um, it it makes you in some way own that story and mm -hmm. that that knowledge and it goes deeper and it lasts longer and mm -hmm. yeah it's an enduring understanding mm -hmm. Meg do you want to talk a little bit about uh, listening like um, you know what um, the the habit of learning to listen yeah I, yeah. I love that. I also, I want to throw on to what you just said. It, I love that you said gospel scented stories. Yeah, that was Cause nice. Cause it's just so, that's a living book to me, mm -hmm. right? Like the, it resonates with our soul. Um, and it also made me think as I thought about all this, the verse in Colossians, I think y'all probably know it, but, um, whatever is true, whatever is noble, what is it, whatever is lovely, think upon such yeah. things, mm -hmm. you know? And so that's what and we're encouraging. I think yeah, the Philippians, yeah. Great. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, but I just, I love that thinking about that when you said that, um, yeah, I, I have loved learning about narration since we've been here. Um, and, um, I am fascinated by the way that it works. It just seems so simple and, and maybe mm -hmm. like you were saying inefficient sometimes mm -hmm. too, like really, what are we doing here? Um, but thinking about how that knowledge is getting to the inner courts of their, um, their minds. But I also, as I thought about this, I thought like, what is the point of education? You know, it, it made me go to that point. Like, okay, why are we doing narration? What is the point of education? And it made me dig into the treasure trove that I found on the website, the Trinity website, which is under the mission and history of the school of all these articles that basically, you know, bring all this down. And one of the things that y'all have on there, it says um, that Charlotte Mason advocated a rich, high quality, interesting curriculum for children, not merely to educate them, but also to guide them in the development of character and cultivate in them a lifelong love of learning. And I thought what narration does ultimately is it cultivates character, right? Mm -hmm. Because if we can be good listeners, we can make real difference in this world. So this is uh, fascinating. We could go on uh, for such a long conversation, but we're, we're going to need to wrap up here. I want to just ask Emily, you, you're an artist. Uh, and I remember when you did uh, some portraits around here, mm -hmm. they're really powerful of some of the kids when you were working here as, a, yeah. as an aide. And um, what do you think about how all this, you know, quality literature, uh, putting the best things in front of kids, mm -hmm. um, how does that relate to art and what they see and in the books they see and the illustrations that they see. Yeah. So 
I think kind of paired with not giving your child twaddle reading, definitely don't give your child twaddle illustrations um, because the illustrations that children see when they're young, they really do form um, their aesthetic, I feel like, in a lot of ways. It's kind of hard to undo. And um, there there was kind of a golden age of illustration. Children's books used to be illustrated by the best artists and paintings would hang in galleries. And um, I have found that um, when I find books that are well illustrated, it influences the aesthetic of my children pretty much right away, the way they Mm. experience the woods, the way they experience um, kind of a tumble-down ruin that they find here or there. Um, Mm. It's it's very formative. Um, Who are some of the illustrators that you love? Yeah, Yeah. so um, Arthur Rackham is a big one. Um, I know he actually formed C.S. Lewis's um, visual hmm. lexicon, um, and Howard Pyle and N.C. Mm-hmm. Wyeth. They, um, N.C. Wyeth, I think, did Treasure Island and Robin Hood and um, those books. Elsa Beskow, she's a Swedish illustrator. Um, really sweet books for young children um, that are very rich and varied and very transportive. I think the other element that makes... Um, illustrations living is if they are transportive out of your time out of your um normal mode of being um and they're out there it's hard to find and um but but yeah they're out there those are some of elizabeth zwerger is the current one that i like she's the only one that's practicing now that i i really like she's i think german but um she illustrated fairy tales and things Yeah, that's such a good thing for us to think about, too. Thank you for mentioning that. Well, the last thing I want to ask about is, and Meg, I think I'll ask you, is, um, you know, Mason um, offered her education to all children. She had a goal that she wanted to see every child educated in the way she talked about, and it's certainly an uh, aspirational goal. Um, but I think especially today, as we think about equity in education, um, often hear people say, boy, I, you know, Trinity education is so valuable. I wish all kids could have this kind of education. And yeah. I wonder if you could t- say a little bit about that and what you learned from the chapter or what that got you thinking about in terms of equity. Yeah. Well, I think I love the story at the end where... What it, what is it? Marva Collins. Marva Collins in, up in Chicago. In Chicago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um and how she took this into a, a um underprivileged you know children in a school, and it worked. You know, you've got these kids who were probably not doing great, and then they're reading Shakespeare for fun and sharing the the books with each other. Um, but what I one of the things about Mason that has really challenged me, like maybe the as I've dipped my toes in and kind of thought about this is that children are born persons. Um, mm-hmm. And this idea that that we are all image bearers and we're image bearers from when we were born. You know, it's not yeah. like at 13, you become an image bearer and then you're deserving of respect. And, um, and so when I think about what's going on in our culture, like what's really underneath the stories in the news and the social media posts, what is under it is, would you please see us as persons? 
yeah, you know, like could, and, could we right. see everyone as an image bearer? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think like if this kind of education can reach all kids, it would be a reconciling thing, you know, not, yeah. it wouldn't just educate kids, but it would speak of, of the reconciliation, um, that we see, especially in the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I thought about that, I thought, you know, it's so easy to say that but it's really hard to do. Mm -hmm. And the reason why it's hard to do is because the reality is that people who are different from us, it make us feel uncomfortable sometimes, you know, Mm -hmm. um, we laugh, we live in like kind of a regular neighborhood, but our street is insanely diverse. Mm -hmm. And what it's revealed in me is how stepping over the proverbial aisle into Mm -hmm. somebody else's culture and their values that are different from mine is so difficult but that's literally the gospel, mm-hmm. you know, that, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and he came into our world, which is unholy and all the things that he is not, but he came to us and, mm-hmm. and has given us this ministry of reconciliation, as Paul says. And, um, and so I think about, you know, the gift that we're being given with this, this education, that's really beautiful mm-hmm. that I think most of us in the school, if not all of us have seen the way that our kids are known and loved it's yep. transformative, you know? Right. And so that what if everybody had access to that? Mm-hmm. I, it would literally change the entire world. Yep. Um, and it just makes me really excited to think. And, and I will say also that I am so proud of Trinity and y'all as the leadership for being brave and taking on this subject because it's got all sorts of weighted um, controversies and stuff. But for the sake of the gospel, you've, yeah. you've waded into these waters. Mm-hmm. Well, I think um, every one of those families on your street has stories from their culture mm-hmm. uh, that they, that also, you know, we're listening for living books and living stories, yes. uh, really beautiful illustrations that come from mm-hmm. different places. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I think that, uh, is also a kind of travel to a different place, and we we want Absolutely. to do that, and we're we're trying to think about that as we think about the curriculum of Trinity, um, mm-hmm. classically formed uh, with a Western emphasis, but also open and attentive to the the really great living books that'll come from other places too, and listening for those stories. Mm-hmm. And we also believe, as you said, that all truth is God's truth and that the gospel in those living stories, the gospel is going to be there yeah. in, in sort of the scent of the gospel, mm-hmm. as you said, in, in powerful ways. And yeah. So, well, thank you all so much for talking today. This has been great. Yeah. I've really, I've learned a lot and I hope that our listeners have. And I appreciate you all and the partnership with parents that you all represent and model for everyone. And thanks for your leadership in the Trinity Parent Organization, too. Absolutely. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. Thanks for having us. The mission of Trinity School is to educate students in transitional kindergarten to grade 12 within the framework of Christian faith and conviction, teaching the classical tools of learning, providing a rich yet unhurried curriculum, and communicating truth, goodness, and beauty. Find out more at trinityschoolnc.org.